Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. When you're going through traumatic experiences as a young person, maybe in your teens or even earlier in my case, you're going to look for people that are the exact same as you, that are suffering dearly, because you have the same energy. In my teens, there would have been, I would have been stabbed. I tried to take my own life in car crashes, really risky behaviours. The penny dropped. I just, something happened. I got my first glimpse of awareness. And I was thinking, like, I'm 27, I was knowing that I'm around a long time. And something in me just said, you know what, pick up the phone. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. For countless young men and women living with addiction, each day is a chaotic tapestry of crime, drug-taking and violence. The well-worn paths to prison and rehab often fail to change the course of their lives and instead lead them straight back to the communities and gangs where the spiral continues. But change can happen and hope is never lost. And today, I'm talking to two former criminals who once stood in the shadows of death but who have both lived to tell the tale. The extraordinary lives of James Leonard and Timmy Long are stories of sadness, anger and resilience against all the odds. They tell me how childhood traumas led them on a dangerous path into criminality and chaos until a moment of clarity brought them back from the brink. Now in their own journeys of recovery, the duo, who co-host the Two Norries podcast, have made it their mission to turn back to the darkness and offer a helping hand to those still struggling to get out alive. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Explain to a dub what the Two Norries are and what that word means, the that word narries, it's a it's a real cork phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Like like um like Dublin, Cork is Cork City is split into two. So on the north side of the River Lee we're known as Narries. And on the south side they're not known as Sarries, but you're definitely a Nari from the north side. But it would have been used as a phrase by people from the south side, which would be more affluent, and the north side would typically be working class social housing development, you know. Nearly all of the north side would be pockets of, some parts of the south side would be, but in general terms, the more affluent professional class would be on the south side and the blue collar working class would be on the north side. So a nari then sometimes would be used to like describe somebody that, uh, it, it can be used derogatory if it's used by somebody from the south side has connotations of tracksuit, hoodie, drugs, antisocial behaviour, you know. So I think it was just a little bit of ownership on that phrase and to show people that you can be from the north side and still be intellectual and be a leader and be responsible and all these things. So you take ownership of the word. Yeah. Um, you're both from Knocknaheeny, which is a, a place that I remember hearing of in, in um, you know, for, for a long time always on the news and maybe never for positive reasons. Um, maybe James, you'll tell me a little bit about the area and then Timmy, you can tell me a little bit about growing up in it. 
Yeah, so um, Knocknahini is on northwest Cork City. So it's about three kilometers um, before Blarney, but it's just on the periphery of Cork City. So if you come out your front door and you walk 10 minutes to the right, you're in the city centre. And you walk 15 minutes to the left, you're nearly in Blarney. You know? So um, like Dublin uh, suburbs, you have a lot of fields and horses and scramblers, that type of a community, you know. Working class are very close-knit. Um, these developments, these houses were built around the late 70s, early 80s. Nocknahini is there since 1981. Um, a lot of working class people, it's all social housing, so there have been all working class people at the time when they went in, the houses went in there, they would have been working in our, in um, Ford's factory, when Ford's was in Cork, uh, Dunlop's was another huge employer, a lot of other textile um, industries. But when, he, when we had a recession in the 80s, of course, the jobs left the city. Um, so when you have, as you've experienced in Dublin, when you have high areas with all social housing and then the jobs leave the areas it's just a breeding ground for unemployment uh, mental health issues addiction and antisocial behavior and i was actually born in dublin i was born in the coombe in halloween in 1985 we lived in neilstown and my mom because uh, dublin was a bit wild for my mother who's from cork my dad is from inchicore but my mother wanted to move somewhere a little bit quieter. So we moved to Knocknahini in 1986, which was probably one of the most deprived parts of Munster. But better the devil you know, I would say, Nicola. And Timmy, you were sort of born in the late 1970s, am I right? And you would have been growing up in the 80s. I don't look that old, do I? Have I aged you? I'm sorry if I have. <laughs> a couple of years. Um, I was born in 1981. Oh, just a little um, bit then. Yeah, my mother brought up three of us, three boys, on her own. There was a lot of mental health issues within the the family unit. You know, she suffered severely with, with her mental health. She had a breakdown when I was three, um, and she was rearing two boys at that stage on her own. So, growing up would have been looking back now and knowing how difficult a childhood like that was. Um, growing up was was quite traumatic. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't understand because I had a child's mind. Um, and it just kind of, it, it, it turned me into an introvert as in a person, you know. So growing up for me would have been, I would have been also probably the minder of my mother as well growing up because of, of her own issues. And I had two siblings as well. Um, who I also had to mind, you know, because I, I would have took on the the farther role of the household at a really young age. Um, and that's what it was like growing up. School was never something that I could focus on. I would go into the school and I could never focus because my mind was on what was going on at home or what I was going home to after school, you know. So... It, it was it was a difficult childhood, you know, and f from that childhood then stemmed a teenager that was very violent, that um, used an awful lot of alcohol and drugs because it gave him self-confidence, it gave him all these things that he wasn't um, giving grown up by an adult, a healthy adult, mm. you know. You weren't equipped so, with. Did no, you, um, no. like when you say... Your mum had a nervous breakdown when you were three. You probably don't remember that. You've been told that somewhere along the line. But 
you know, in later life, you probably did realise when there was something happening with her. Was there a community that stepped in there? Was there a family that stepped in? Was there a support network that enveloped you when these incidents happened with your mother or were you left to deal with it yourself? Um, If I'm going to be brutally honest, I will say I was probably left to deal with a lot of it myself, only down to a few great neighbours that lived with us above in, in, in our Cullen and one or two family members that lived in the area who would have seen some of the bits and pieces. They, they, they'd done their best. You have to remember too, Nicola, you know, when I look at the situation back then, I, I tried to take into consideration the times as well. It was the early 80s. There was a massive recession in the country. People were struggling. People were actually starving back then, you know, because there was no work for men in the country, our women. So it was just, it was a really, really, really difficult time for me, you know, um, and it just makes a lot of sense later on in life why Timmy grew up to be the person he was, you know, violence, drug addiction, drugs, all these different things. If I was to look back at a child, if I, if I seen a child on the streets now and he was going through the similar situations as me, I, I can see, I could, I could forecast that child's future, you know, um, and that's what it has given me, is given me experience and a, a bit of forecasting and, and clairvoyancy, I'm not saying I'm a mystic or anything like, but you can actually see what's coming down the line for for certain kids because you can relate to their their issues that's going on in their own family homes, you know. And did you ever feel you had a childhood, like, you know, people in the know about these things talk about moments that the childhood ends for for a kid that's been traumatised or, um, you know, that they realise that life isn't fun do you ever remember it being fun or for you, was it always traumatised? It was always traumatised. You know, my mother was a very, very violent woman. You know, I can remember at the age of six or seven years of age wanting to take my own life, you know, hiding underneath a bed, you know, in fear, completely fear, and not knowing what suicide was, but wanting to die because of the abuse that I was suffering inside in the family home, you know, and it was just, it was horrific. And that was the moment that I completely shut off from the human race. Uh, I lost all forms of trust. You know, I completely shut, shut down. Uh, I can never remember feeling anything after that because it just, it, it just gave me a complete lack of trust or, or any other feeling for for human beings. You have to remember, this is my main caregiver, the person you're supposed to really get your main attachments from. And she was very, very sick. You know, she was very, very, very sick. She was left with two young boys initially by my father who moved to England at the time, you know. And she didn't handle it very well, you know, because she obviously must have loved them dearly, but it didn't, she didn't handle it. So it did, there was, it, that was my my moment, and I can I see that moment now only because I've been in recovery for the last few years, and I've done certain things to bring me back into certain situations in my life to un, to make me understand why 
I did things the way I did and, and, and why I became the person I did. You know, I literally didn't have a chance. And I remember being one of my counsellors, a psychotherapist, you know, for years and talking about my story after a long time, you know, because of the trust and stuff. And him, him telling me, like, you should actually be dead, like, considering your, 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 your situation as a child. Like, not many people go on to actually live a normal life like the one you have today, you know, like even someone like you in your own podcast there, I, I think a joy, uh, you know, like joy, his story was, no, I won't, I won't compare it to the same, but I can completely relate how he has really switched over his life. Um, and he has some form of a structure in life today, um, which what I have as well today in my own life, you know. And structure of course is so important um, for human beings. You found some sort of relief from all the pain you were feeling through substance abuse, which I think you have said you started with, was it glue and the likes of that when you were about 10? Yeah, I started in school. Myself, you see, when you're going through traumatic experiences as a young person, maybe in your teens or even earlier in my case, you're going to look for people that are the exact same as you, that are suffering dearly. Because you have the same energy, okay? You don't know what's going on, but you have the same energy. And that's what happened. I found people in school that were suffering as well at home and who couldn't focus in school. And we used to go on the hop from school and we'd go to the local shops then in the area and we'd rob. And we'd rob gas or we'd rob, we'd get petrol or glue or nail varnish, whatever it may be. And we'd go up the fields then. And we'd sniff out of a bag and we'd be happy out. Not knowing nothing about what we were doing. You know, we were just living in that moment just to take us out of our heads, away from the shit that was going on in our lives. The the, the, the abuse, the, the I, I won't say, or is it the right word? It, 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 neglect, but I don't think any of it was conscious on any of our parents' behalf, I think they had their own struggles. They had their own stuff going on for them. You know, they didn't have the awareness. No. So, like, if I was to do things like that today, like, you'd say, oh, Jesus, like, you know, what the fuck, you know, because I have awareness and I know what's right and wrong. But back then, like, people, people were coming from the 60s and the 70s and back then, Kids were like kids were never to be heard. They were just seeing. They were never to be heard, you know. And it must have been a really tough time. No, there's no justification for a lot of actions of people back, you know. But it, it, I tried to forgive and forget and 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 continue with my own life with any without any form of resentment or or anything else. I just trying to bring as much love into it as I possibly can, um, as a human being. So, James. You were living down the road with your family and um, Timmy Long must have been a fairly well-known teenager by the time he was a tough guy. He was known on the streets and was he, or were, the, you know, were Timmy and his brothers the type of young kids that your family told you to keep away from or were you friendly with, I think you were friendly with one of Timmy's, with Timmy's youngest brother, is that right? Yeah, Timmy's mother and my mother was friends and Timmy only lived like, I'd say 20 metres from my house, only a few doors away, you know, so it was very, a very small estate. 
So I kind of grew up in Timmy's house. I would have stayed in his in his house overnights and slumber parties and all these things. His brother Jean Paul would have been my best friend growing up, and his brother Tommy then is kind of between me and Timmy. But we I would have kind of hung around with him, and then Timmy was old, or Timmy's my brother Keith's age. But yeah, we always looked up to Timmy because Timmy was like, um, I still look up to Timmy today. And I swear to God, I wouldn't have done this podcast only that Timmy was doing it with me. Because I always felt like, uh, I don't know, I always felt safe with Timmy. I always felt like, you know, things would be okay, if, you know, because I trust Timmy, I suppose. But even back then, Timmy was always a gentleman, you know. Timmy wasn't like... Um, like a volatile pit bull. I think some people might had some people might have felt like from if they didn't know Timmy by looking at him and think Jesus Christ he turned on you. you know the way some people think a pit bull might just turn on you, but Timmy was always a gentleman, you know. And uh, the family was always lovely. We used to get on really well. Um, I remember my mother used to be quite strict. So if I was if I wanted to go to a teenage disco, you know, I tell my mum I was going off to stay in Timmy's house with John Paul. And then I, John Paul, tell John Paul's mum, my mum said I could go, you know, just that type of thing, you know, so um, up to a lot of mischief. But like Timmy described the area, well, you know, in our homes, there was a lot of houses, I suppose, that had no fathers. Um, there was a lot of addiction in the area. Um, there was a lot of antisocial behaviour um, and I suppose criminality. And these were the kind of people that we looked up to, you know. Um, in my own home, there would have been... Uh, criminality um, and my mother and father didn't really get on too well so my dad would be in and out of the home but I had a real, a real strong attachment with him so when he was being put out of the home I used, I couldn't understand it for one but it was caused a lot of conflict in the house so when you're a child and you hear the you hear him coming home and then my mother be just be murdered anyway just put it that way but there's all, you always get a sense that uh, it's going to kick off you know and I think that sense of anxiety or fear, I think, um, I, I think I carried that for a long time. You know, um, eventually when my dad, when I was about twelve, my dad got a he got a seven year sentence, and I remember like feeling like that was like, you know, when you're twelve, you're thinking seven years. You know, you're thinking like I'm going to be a man when he gets out. You know, I, I found it very hard to understand. I I understood that there was something going on. You know, because. Um, I understood, you know, I understood there was some sort of criminality going on. I, I understood that the people I was around in the pubs, they, had, they all kind of had reputations. And um, but, but when you're 12, 10, 11, 12, you still don't really know, you know. And I remember um, finding big bundles of cash and, you know, this stuff that's not typical, you know. But at the same time, when he when he got that sentence, I found it very hard to understand that. And I, I think I grieved like as if it was a death. Um, for I think through my early teens when I was 12, 13 as well around that time you're going from secondary from primary school into secondary school you're just coming from a boy into a man puberty and there's a lot going on at that time and um, I, like as a boy I would have been quite pleasant I think uh, in primary school would have been involved in sports and clubs and all these things And um, but when I became a teenager when that happened then uh, I just Stopped playing sports, stopped engaging in school, got into a lot of trouble in school. Um, I remember reading years later when I was doing criminology, you know, um, in school, I remember I used to get into so much conflict that they used to bring my mother in all the time. And that was causing a lot of conflict between me and my mum when I go home. And it was just 
from the morning you wake up, you go to school, you come home before you go to bed. It was always, it was all negativity. It was all conflict. And um, you feel like you're just bad. Like you just feel like the labels the teacher give you, that, that tug and scut and all these things that used to be called in secondary school. But I remember reading in criminology years later, um, children in, in my circumstances at that time, my behaviour was actually very understandable. And it wasn't that I was lacking intelligence. I was always very bright in school, but my test scores were shocking. I just found it very hard to sit still. I found it very hard to concentrate. My head was always racing. My, you know, I was just hurt and the anger then developed in my teenage years. And um, the core conditions for addiction were there long before I ever picked up a substance. Because as soon as I picked up a substance, that wanting or that connection I missed with people that I, I had distance between my mum and and myself. I didn't have, my because my dad wasn't around and when he, even, when he even came back, it wasn't really the same for a while. But when I took drugs with the boys on the street, like Timmy's brothers and the rest of us, I felt that sense of love and safety, I suppose, is a big one as well. You know, I felt safety in the group. And... Um, yeah, that was kind of, once I started using, I just ran with it. I felt like this, especially when I took an ecstasy tablet. The first time I took it, that sense of, I don't think, if, I don't know if you ever took one, you don't have to say anything about that sense of love and warmth and camaraderie and belonging. It gives you, I remember thinking like, this is, it, this is, you know, what I should be, this is what I should be doing, you know. You know, it's funny because you've both described that, the beginning of your drug use is to do with the camaraderie. It's to do with the sense of belonging. You're having fun with it, I suppose, really, aren't you? Let's be straight. It's enjoyable. It's taking you away from the pain you're suffering in your life and the traumas you have in school and at home. So that's probably the first stage for everybody with drug use, isn't it? It's that sort of romance, nearly. It's the honeymoon period. What happens next? Timmy, maybe you pick up from where you were with your into your teenage years and you're coming out of the sort of the, the solvent juice into harder drugs. What happens next is um, chaos. You know, um, it's completely chaotic. When I became, started becoming bad with, with drugs, I started fitting in then with all different forms of groups, you know, I I I, I fitted in with with the travellers and the in the halting sites. That's where I would spend a lot of my time, using and and, and robbing and going joyriding. No, I was fourteen at this stage, and joyriding was a big part of it, and robbing was a massive part of it to get drugs. You know, this was the early nineties. Um, and my mother at this stage had a partner, so my. My father kind of role was was a little bit over because she had a man in her life, so I was able to, you know, yo, grand, now I can go off, I can do my own thing. But when I found the ecstasy as well back in the early nineties, it just changed my whole life because you have to understand this was a child who never felt love. You know, next all of a sudden he's taking ecstasy every night of the week and he wants to fucking hug trees and. Give everyone next to him a hug and a kiss and tell everyone he loves him, you know, because of the love he was feeling. He, this was something he would have never experienced. Um, so it went from taking the first ecstasy one night to taking him every single day, out robbing every single night to get money for ease, you know. 
joyriding. You know, I could have never, I would have never been able to speak to women or anything back then. With drinking drugs, I was able to do it all. Now, alcohol would have been something I would have tried to stay away from as much as I can because every time I drank, I blacked out. Completely blacked out. Um, and it just went on like that for years. I started getting a lot of charges, you know, for cars and robbing and assaults and different things like that. So I went into my first treatment centre at the age of 15. Um, and... I stayed there for for a while. My mother's partner was after hanging himself as well at that time. So my mother was gone into a mental institution f- for a while because she she was she was trying to kill herself as well and she couldn't cope with with the grief. Um so there was a family member taking care of us. But I went into treatment while she was in, in inside in that place and the treatment center was closing down. So they moved me to France, to another treatment centre where I stayed for another two years. And I came back from there when I was 18 or 19 years of age. Completely away from alcohol and drugs for two and a half years, but had no had no, no support unit when I came home. None whatsoever, you know. Um, I was coming home with, with the best of intentions to, to be some form of normal person completely not understanding the amount of trauma that I had to deal with or anything like that so I managed to last for about six months off all alcohol and drugs um, and about 19 years of age I went back drinking and my life then kind of took off then and and this completely chaotic run of complete madness cocaine steroids we spoke about it the last time the steroid and the cocaine binges like when I was on these binges absolutely anything could happen or anybody could get hurt because I literally did not care if I was put to the ground for life, for death, or whether I was put into a cell for life. I had completely no consideration for any other human being or myself. You know, I had a young child at the time and it didn't matter. You know, the the only times my child would matter to me is at the end of my binge when I was feeling pity for myself because I couldn't see my daughter because of my behaviours and rightly so my wife, no wife, she was my partner at the time, kept the child away from me for the child's own sake and good. Thankfully she did because um, God knows how that would have affected the child in, in her later life, you know, so... My life just went completely nuts for, for, for that time frame. Drugs was a massive part of my life. Drug dealing, you know, I had a massive gambling addiction as well. Um, so whatever was being brought in for drugs was either going up my nose or going over the counter in the bookies or in, over the counter in the pub. And it was just chaotic. You know, I started my I started becoming more and more violent then. Um, and that's when, you know, my mental health started to deteriorate. I was completely paranoid. Towards the end, I was walking around the place with my hood up, thinking that every van on the left of me or the right of me, some fellow was going to come out and shoot me. And it was just full of fear, constantly full of fear that my life was going to be taken, you know, because I was very violent as well myself when on drugs, you know, and... I would have been involved in a lot of criminal activity as well in different areas, you know, um, not knowing the actual damage that could have came from them. My life could have ended at absolutely any moment and so could have other people's lives that were in my company 
because of our actions and because we literally had no fear or we did not care who who um, got hurt, you know. But uh, deep down, behind all that stuff, Nicola, I did really believe that there was a gentle, real gentle soul that lost all forms of innocence at a really young age and had to become this person for for him to succeed and to live in, in this world because of of what was after happening to him as a child. I had to really build myself up. Behind it all, I was still this little boy, this six or seven-year-old boy that just wanted to be loved and just, just to be looked after. But um, I also had built up this reputation then that I had to keep on to because there was that fear of somebody finding out you know, finding out who I was and taking advantage of me, and and you know, and and I didn't want to go back to that little boy who was who was um, who was you know abused and, and and and. I think a lot of young kids and and you know young adults in their twenties who are living in that kind of a life, and maybe some of them in gangs, are wearing a mask. And, you know, they don't feel there's any way of taking it off or stepping out or getting out. And I think stories of survival like your own are hopefully getting through to some of them eventually that there is another way. I want to come back to you, Timmy, in a minute to talk to you about the age of 30, which you saw as a cutoff point for you. But James, you... (sighs) You sort of spiralled into a drug that wasn't really a problem in Cork. Like, or was it? Is that my ignorance? Was heroin was all about Dublin. That's where the epidemic was. That's where, you know, it was only in recent years. I mean, in very recent years, I can recall being interviewed and you know, from local radios around the country asking me, would there be heroin in such and such a place? But it didn't seem to go out of Dublin too quickly or easily. But yes, you found it um, in Cork and you were probably one of a handful of users at the time. Yeah, that's right. I remember um, when Dublin, Manchester, Liverpool and the like had the heroin epidemic in Cork, we avoided it. Um, does a few theories on that. One is there was a couple of families controlling the drugs trade that were making enough from hash, cocaine, ecstasy that didn't want the heat of heroin. So that's one. Another one was a strong paramilitary presence in Cork kept it out. Um, but really, I think what, I suppose, what led to the escalation of the prevalence of it here is, I think, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Allies in 2001 led to, you know, mass uh, production of opium and flooded the European market. Um, in 2004, we had a prison in Cork called Spike Island. In 2004, people like me and Timmy that would have been there started getting sent to St. Patrick's, Mount Joy, Weefield. I think they picked up the habits, definitely the connections. And when they came back, 2005, 2006, you're looking at recession, so I think it was a lot of different things coming together. And then I suppose for fellas like me, where in my vintage that have left school or finished school and started working, um, 
lot of the lads emigrated, and for those of us that couldn't afford to emigrate, we had just worklessness, feelings of worklessness, joblessness, no opportunity, and huge prevalence of heroin in the city. And how I got into it really was my main drug of choice was benzodiazepines. My whole day, five days of the week, nine to five, my job was going across Cork City and County on the bus getting prescriptions from quack doctors for cash. Um, we used to get benzodiazepines like Xanax, Valium, Rohypnol, DF-118s, which were opiate codeine tablets. They, they were the ones we used to get. But I didn't like the opiate DDF 118s. I didn't like them. They used to make me feel sick and nauseous. But they were a good seller because there's a lot of people addicted to painkillers in Cork at the time. There probably still is. So I used to swap them with this guy. But one day, this guy, and he would be uh, a kind of an OG guy. You know, he would have been in our prison years ago, but he was a good bro. But he was he was buying them off me. But one day, he says, look, I wants to try some of this instead. So I got two bags off him. Now, I, my idea of heroin was street drug use, intravenous, HIV and all this. But it was it was pitched to me that you smoked this and, you know, it was um, a less harmful, less addictive, safer way to use it, you know. So we started smoking it. Uh, the first time I smoked it was actually in the district court cell of Cork, Cork District Court. One of the lads was down for court from Dublin and he had some. So we smoked it in a roll-up. But the first time I really smoked it on tinfoil chase, the dragon, was around 2005. And it was when I was swapping tablets. And I smoked it for a couple of years. Even in, I remember in Cork Prison in 2006, there was about a handful of, handful of us on the yard of about 200 people. Um, there was about a handful of us on the yard that was using heroin at the time. And it used to be like, oh, James and the girls, you know. In 2007, there was a handful that wasn't on the girl. And that's how quickly it spread. It got really big in Cork. Um, smoked it for a few years. Ended up, you know, I was never, uh, I never seen myself as a criminal either, to be honest. I was never a master criminal. I was never doing anything where I was making loads of money or loads of profit. It was always around drugs. You know, and before the heroin came in, it was a lot of antisocial behaviour. Joy and like what Tim, like what Timmy said, you know, um, in my teens, there would have been I would have been stabbed. I tried to take my own life in car crashes, really risky behaviours that you probably come across all the time. But when I come into when I was twenty and the heroin came in, it just became around robbing, um, possession of drugs, um, and stuff like that. Uh, petty stuff to feed, fund the habit, you know. And smoking led to injection uh, inevitably and the things I swore I'd never do, I did. Um, robbing from friends and family, ripping off anybody that you know, presented the opportunity and just really doing things that created a lot of incongruence with me, you know. Things like what Timmy said earlier on. He knew he was better than what he was doing. He knew there was potentially a good man there. And I felt that too. I felt I had ability to do something good with my life. I just, it's not that I didn't have the opportunities. I'd been to re rehab a few times. I just didn't have the belief. I genuinely felt like that. I was worthless, you know. And when you're using intravenous heroin in a city where it's relatively new, the stigma is probably magnified because... Not only is this drug new, but he's actually using it, you know. So, and you feel all that and you feel very shamed. If you're going into a chemist and you're getting needles, you're very uh, hypervigilant about who's looking at you. And, you know, the hood was always up. The eyes were always down. 
shoulders hunched, just a very, very insecure, um, pitiful person I became, really. Um, even I used to try to dress well. I was always kind of dressed immaculate. And I, was, you know, I used to always have clean clothes on, clean shaving, but I'd be very skinny and very kind of yellowy. You know, I'd always kind of have a partner or a girlfriend. Um, it was always to mask up, you know. I remember... You know, not wanting to be intimate with girls, not wanting to take out my clothes in front of the girls because of scars on my arms, infections and wounds and stuff like that, you know, of the shame of it. Um, yeah, it's just when I even talk about it, I even get emotional because it just brings back that pitiful person I was. And when I was in that state, I just stayed away from family for Christmases, any events I would never go to because I just... I was just so ashamed and I didn't want to present because I knew I wasn't presenting well and every time they see me they're away worrying then, you know, so um wasn't uncommon for me to not make contact with them for months, you know, and they were at, I think uh, for me, Nick, at the time, prison was respite, you know, and if I went in for eight months, six months, five months, whatever, it helped me regenerate physically, you know. So did you have support from home? Did they try and, you know tell you that they'd always be there for you or were you getting the door closed? I was getting bored. I was getting bored. I suppose when you look at it this way and I'd say the same to a family member today because I work in addiction service. If you have a chaotic drug user, somebody that's using intravenous drugs, that's robbing anybody he gets an opportunity to, how can you have that inside your hubs? How can you actually try and manage a family of girls, of children, of younger sisters how can you manage to work? How can you go to work and, and no one come home that everything could be sold or any bit of cash just lying around? You can't. So I completely understand now why I wasn't allowed in the family home. But at the time, I had a huge resentment. I felt abandoned, to be honest with you. And I, I just had, it, it, I suppose, took me a lot of you know therapy and a, a bit of maturity as well. I completely understand why my mother did what she did. Um, my father didn't really have the, the space to let me stay with him. But at the same time, you know, I didn't want to be around him either, Nicola, because of the lifestyle I was living. The last thing, I, I was, there was so much madness that the last thing I wanted now was a family member lecturing me, you know, so it suited me to stay with girls. Generally, I'd be in a relationship and I'd be staying in a house or else I'd be staying in a, in a, one of the boys or on the couch suffering. And then towards the end, I was sleeping rough, you know, and I was sleeping in garden sheds and wherever I could. And, like, if I had money or if I had drugs or I was after getting a script from a chemist, I knew I could go to a house then for a period of time, you know. But if it dried up, you're on your own. That was kind of the way it was, you know. Um, but I always knew that every time I ended up in prison or every time I ended up in rehab, my family rallied around me and they did the best for me. But I would relapse the day I get out of treatment, the day I get out of prison because the enormity of the task ahead of me was very overwhelming. And that feeling of fear, that sense of fear I spoke about, when I didn't have drugs, I just always was afraid. I felt so much fear. And I remember if I was if I was in prison, I actually felt more freedom in there because when I was in there, I was able to go to the school, I was able to go to the gym, I had a social life in there. I was playing cards, playing Dan we used to play. I was playing football handball, I had good access to my family, things was good. When they used to call me, James, pack your kitchen, you're going home, the anxiety that would come over me, I'd be shaking, going out the gate, and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? 
and it was always to the chemist, it was always to the doctor for the script, and it was just a load of Valium, a load of Xanax, and completely just numb all that fear and anxiety. And as soon as I got out, that was it then. As soon as you start then, it was just a matter of time before you ended back up in there, you know. It was a total crutch for the for the real world and for, for life. Timmy, to go back to you, because when we were talking the other day, you said that you never thought you were going to live past 30. And it sounded like that chaotic life you were leading, which I can see a lot of young people when they're in the throes of that. And I think I described it that they're living kind of each day nearly like it's their last. They don't care. And you can totally connect with that. What was it about the age of 30? Why did you not think, did you think you were just going to either be killed or kill or whatever by that time or be jailed? I could I never see a future. I could never see a future. I had no ambitions. I had no goal. You know, I really didn't want too much in, in life. Once upon a time, I wanted to be this big drug dealer who everybody feared, you know, um, because I was being left alone and people just gave me space. That was my goal when I was living that life of crime. And I did say as well, we were speaking during the live podcast about a family that you knew where the grand, the grandparents were leaving the grandkids out selling drugs. I can understand that mentality because that, that was once upon a time my mentality. You know, the family business. It was never going to be the family business, the construction or the maintenance. It was the drug dealing. You know, that's that was the mentality I had. You see, I grew up in an area where I had no role model in my family home, you know, I, I, and there was none on the street. All my role models were, were guys going to prison, selling drugs. That's And I see the respect that they were getting from other guys in the community, dangerous fellas that were classified as dangerous back then. You know, and I see the amount of tension the fellas were getting because they were selling drugs, you know, and they were driving the fast cars and the big cars, you know. Like, I liked that. These were things that I never had growing up and I see what kind of attention. And I loved the attention when I was drunk or stoned. I loved the attention. I always wanted to be the centre of the attention, you know. But... Going back to your question, I just probably didn't want to see a life after 30. You know, I probably just wanted to... I was very proud, right, Nicola? I was very proud and I always said I would never take my own life, no matter what, because of the way I seen my mother struggle after her partner took his life when I was when I was 15, you know? So I always had that kind of... Uh, proudness about never ever wanting to take my own life no matter how bad I was feeling or anything like that so that's why I could never see a life you know and I was involved in so much crime as well my life could have turned completely bad at any point because of the people that was in in my life the people that I was involved with during true crime and and other other stuff so I cannot completely understand why people can't see beyond a certain age, particularly if they're caught up in some form of addiction, which in my case was was cocaine and 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 tablets and, and alcohol. You know, I loved I loved these things and I lived for them. I didn't live for my kids. I didn't live 
to be a successful person in business. I lived every single day of my life to get stoned so I could completely get out of my head and not deal with my past struggles, the trauma from my childhood and all the shame and fear that I was feeling on a daily basis. All I could ever think about was taking more drugs, selling more drugs, selling this, getting involved in that, you know, and it took up every single bit of my time and energy, you know, um, and I just had this idea that I was going to die soon, you know, and in one way, if you look at it like this, that person did die, you know, that person, that lifestyle died the moment when I hit 31, when I was 31, that life died because I had... Some people may call this like a flash of lightning. Some people may call it a spiritual awakening. For me, it was it was my first glimpse of awareness that I would have ever had in my lifetime. You know, I was arrested again inside in a prison cell, out in bail for another serious charge that I was going to prison for. I was arresting for robbing a takeaway, a Chinese takeaway with a butter knife because I ran out of money. Completely chaotic stuff. I was out of my head on tablets and cocaine and... I was taking steroids at the time and I was drunk and I went in and I robbed this place. No consideration for anybody that was in there. I got arrested. I had drugs on my body at the time and I planked them. I cheeked them, okay? Um, I got arrested, went to the cell, stripped in the cell. I was handcuffed. Doctor came in to me because there was a there was a big scuffle with the guards, you know, and, and there was a lot of pepper spray and everything else involved. And I remember lying down in this cell covered in pepper spray, and my only thoughts going through my head were, "Will they ever get out of the cell so I can take the drugs back out and start snorting again?" You know, that was all I thought of. And when they left, I checked for the drugs and there was nothing there, and I got up off the bed well, the slab, and I started crawling on my hands and knees in the, on the cell floor trying to pick up white pieces of paint off the floor, white pieces of ceiling paint that must have fell from the ceiling when they were painting it. And um, the penny dropped. I just, something happened. I got my first glimpse of awareness. There was a barn in our order. I wasn't left near the family home. And I was out in bail. I was after breaking the curfew for the bail. I had nothing to live for. I had nothing to live for. And this voice just clicked in my head and I said, like, is this how your life is going to be? You know, you're here in a cell. You probably won't see your kids for years after today. You know, you, you've no, your partner's gone. Nobody wants you. Nobody wants you in your home because you're completely chaotic. You're causing problems for everybody. And I got back up in the bed and I, I, I cried and I cried on that bed for the whole night. You know, and I don't think I ever cried like that. Um, and, that was the last time I drank or drugged or gambled or anything to that nature. And when I came out of the cell, I, I went back to my partner and, 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 I, and I tried to, I groveled. I came back with my tail in between my legs and I groveled and I asked her for another chance. And, and then I went to the treatment, you know, I went to treatment for a month in, in, in that February after the Christmas um, and I went into prison in March and I kept going with the recovery and I educated myself in prison. When I went into prison, I could barely read or write. I'd done my junior short in the prison. I kept moving forward and forward 
and I was working with the prison psychologist, the prison drug counsellor. I was going to all the personal development groups in the, the school. I'd done absolutely everything to help myself not to get out of prison early. I was offered uh, an open house, an open prison, a year into my sentence, and I declined it because I needed more time to be working with the prison psychologist. And I worked with her for two and a half years, you know, and it helped me massively, you know, particularly when I was about nine months into my sentence, my mother was after committing suicide in the family home. And she had three boys. The three of us were, were in three separate prisons around the country. I would have been in the Midlands. Tommy would have been Port Leash and John Paul would have been in Cork at the time. And I just think it all got too much for her at that moment, you know. She would have tried to commit suicide numerous and numerous occasions, but the one time she tried, she she hung herself. That was it. She never had tried that before. And um, I, I didn't drink. I didn't drug, you know. Um, and I used to be there every single phone call, at a, every single night I'd be talking to Nicole, who's my wife now, and I used to be praying that the voice on the other side of the phone would tell me that she was leaving me so I could go back using drugs. That's how much I really cared about drugs, you know. I didn't do it at the beginning for anybody, you know, if, if, for, for me. I'd done it at the skin of my teeth to get myself back into my family environment, you know. Because when I was leaving prison, if I didn't have Nicole and, and, and the two kids, I was going home to nothing because... Our family home was taken back by the, the city council when we got out, like the three of us would have been homeless coming out of prison. Timmy, was it difficult to do that in a prison environment where you're probably surrounded by people who are also in chaos and in addiction? Yes, it was It was very, very... No, you have to remember, while I was on the landing as well, I had brothers on the landing, you know, and there's a saying in A and N A, and it's people, places and things, you know. Like, if you're on a landing and the prison, you know, there's a lot of drugs, you know, and, and if you're going through any struggles, the easy option is just to take something and get out of your head so you don't have to deal with whatever. And it was very, very difficult. I felt like I was on my own for the whole prison sentence because outside of a few people that were going to A as well and a few really, really good people within the prison system that really seen me making an effort and trying and they gave me as much help as they possibly could could particularly a psychologist who was who was working with me at the time she was she would have been my rock if I'm honestly going to say while I was there she helped me massively you know but it was it probably was the most difficult thing that I ever had to do because my two brothers were in the landing as well and and they would have been actively involved in drugs and using drugs at the time and I had to isolate myself from them because I would have tried to help them or tried to fix them mm-hmm. with no outcome, you know. So it was it was very difficult. Um, but then the enhanced thing came in while I was in the prison and that helped a little bit, you know. Um, and then when I felt like I was ready to move on from the Midlands, I just said it to the chief and... and Within a week, I was moved into an open prison where I was able to continue my re- recovery and um, and your education, which has yeah. stood to you um, and is an amazing achievement. James, was where were you at at this point when, when, when Timmy was? I mean, 
I don't know how to describe that moment. You don't know how to yourself. It's as if you had some sort of a an outer body experience looking at the person scrabbling on the floor for the cocaine and you didn't like them. Um, but where were you at, James? Were you still in heroin addiction at this point? Was Timmy's sort of um, change about in life something that influenced you or did you know about it? Or No, I was, I was in the throes of addiction at that time and I wouldn't have seen Timmy for a while. Um, but I remember when Timmy's mom died and I remember the day of the funeral and the day of the funeral, I think, I remember uh, we were, I was in the, the local garage, um, Stat Oil at the time and I was, uh, I was full of tablets, you know, and I was going over to the church in my friend's car and the guard stopped us and I got brought over to Toko Guard Station for a section for a sale and supply charge. But I remember... I was in handcuffs standing by the garage and the two funeral cars passed, you know, with Timmy's relatives inside and I was like, you know, just, I could, I can, I'm just picturing now Timmy, you know, being in the cell trying to deal with all this and me, you know, out there in the throes of addiction. It's just like, it's just, it's just a snapshot of kind of where we've come from, you know. But I didn't know Timmy was going through all this in the cell. Like, as far as I know, Timmy was just the same. Timmy's just locked up now, but it'll be the same when he gets out. Because that's the way I was, and that's the way his brothers were, and that's the way, like, not so many people have the transformations Timmy have inside. Not so many people use the prison services like Timmy did, and I did no idea. Um, Parallel to what Timmy was talking about, my drug using came to an end, really. I was 27, I was homeless, and... um, I was after having a few near misses with the overdoses, you know, when you're using intravenously, it can be very uh, dangerous because you don't know the strength of the drug until it's in you, and when it's in you, there's no taking it back out, you know, and um, I was at a stage as well where I just felt so much shame and isolation was a big part of it as well, you know, I was on my own a lot, that I just didn't care if I lived or died, so the amounts of heroin I would be injecting would be potentially fatal or else really... um, going to get me really out of my head, you know. And it's, when you become so tolerant to a drug, it's a very fine line between um, taking a drug and overdosing because you need so much. Like, if you take a regular dose, you're not going to get anything from it. But you have to take so much then that you're trying to get high, but there's a potential for an overdose. So that's kind of where I was at. But I had one particular overdose on Blarney Street, which is not far here. It's just on Cork City. Um where somebody walked past, it's a lane where and it'd be 2am, around 2-3am, and um, you wouldn't get many people walking down this lane where civilians, no, you know, but somebody did anyway. I remember I was pissed drunk, I was after drinking air cans, I remember I was up in my friend's house, I drank a lot of cans up there, and I left his house, I went up to Knocknean, I got two bags, two queues, and um, I went down and I injected the two of them, and I, I don't know what it is, I don't know, is it for every heroin user, but... For me, if I was drunk and I used heroin, it would be, I'd have way more effect, you know. So when I used the two of those bags, I OD'd straight away, you know, to the point they're like, you don't get the opportunity to take the needle out because it just it just knocked me spark out. And I woke up and there was two paramedics and two guardies standing over me. And I got up and I walked away. And um, two days later, again, I was coming down, Nocknahini, Walking down Harvey Road, and I had two cues in my in between my fingers. I used to keep them, you know. So if you're stopped and searched, you never really ask it to open your fingers, you know. And I like that. I was expecting a typical interaction like that would be 
where you're coming from, where you're going, where we are, and this night, you know, let me search your pockets, blah, blah, blah. But when the two girls stopped and I was looking over and they were saying, James, can you remember the other night? And I was thinking, yeah, fucking overdose, was it? As if, like, not new type of anything, you know? And they were like, yeah, we were the ones that was there. She said, you're very lucky somebody walked past, you know, because if nobody passed, you would have been found dead the next morning. And uh, look, we know you a long time now, James, you know, we know you a long time, but this is a new law for you and you will be found dead. You need to look after yourself. You need to, you know, you need to try and get yourself some help. And like, that was um, my my relationship with, my perception of guards as a child, where they would be coming to the house, you know, father in prison, family members, and friends going to prison. And in an area like Nakhnehini, Typically, a guard would not be seen as somebody that are there to help you. If you ever had an issue in the community, you wouldn't really ring a guard. You would try to sort it out yourself. And they were not to be trusted, and they're definitely not there to help you. But in that moment, when I was expecting a certain interaction, but they, they acted complete opposite. I had way more of an impact on me. And I remember um, I was sober at this stage. I had the drugs in my hand. But like Timmy, I remember... Like, my my life was taken up with finding ways and means to get drugs and then getting the drugs and being stoned. But my my I was always preoccupied with drugs. Very little room for reflection or introspection or anything like that. But I remember walking down the hill. There was, it was about two kilometres to the destination where I was going to the house to use the drugs. And in that, let's say, 15, 20 minutes, I was thinking, and I was thinking, they're actually right. The guards are actually right. And I was thinking, like, I'm 27, I was knowing that I'm around a long time. And, you know, like, I just, something in me just said, you know, I want to pick up the phone. And I knew there's one treatment centre in Cork, it's 28 days and it's about 8,000 euros. And I knew that was not for me. I needed to be taken out of my community for about six months at least. And um, plus I was on methadone and I was on tablets and either the detox and all that. So I rang Merchants Key Ireland in Dublin because I was aware of them and um, cut the jigs and the reels anyway. I ended up getting into a detox facility in St. Francis Farm, which is a Merchants Key facility in Tullow, County Carlow. I was eight weeks detoxing from methadone and benzos. I, I was in a few shitty treatment centres in my day, dorms and you know, just brutal. And I was expecting that. But when I went up there, I had my own room, my own shower, had a wardrobe. I was able to put my clothes into a wardrobe and a set of drawers for the first time and I don't know how long because I'd been living out of a, a black bag, you know, the few possessions I had. Um, and I remember closing the door behind me, going into the shower, coming out of the shower, putting on some clean, fresh clothes and lying down on the bed and getting an overwhelming sense of security just to be like, I knew where I was going to be sleeping for the foreseeable future. I knew I was going to be fed. I knew I was safe. And I remember thinking to myself... There's no way I'm going back to that. I didn't know matter what happens here, I'm not going back to that. And in the detox, it's mixed. So you have men and women, boys and girls, no adults, like, and there's lots of relationships happening, you know. And I remember, like, the girl knocking on the door and telling the fuck off from the door. And I was just so afraid. I was just, I think some of them thought I was a snob up there. I wasn't getting involved in any of the dynamics because sometimes people come to the treatment centre from the prison where they don't really want to be there. Some people go to there because they want to get off a court or for family members, but for the wrong reasons, and sometimes they bring drugs in. But I, I stayed away from all that. I, I stayed away from all the dynamics and all the dramas and the politics, and I really had the blinkers on. 
and I was on a farm for six months and I got real, you know, therapy up there and I began to understand, like, why I was using, you know, um, that it wasn't mindless, you know, that it actually was serving a purpose. At least when I was using drugs, I wasn't trying to commit suicide anymore, you know. I never tried to commit suicide when I started using heroin because it numbed me. And the, the counsellor made me realise up there, he was saying, do you know what, you can actually look at that drug because when you were using ecstasy and benzos, you try to take your own life. When you started using heroin, you never try to take your own life. Now I was engaged in risky behaviours, but never suicidal, you know. And I began to think, do you know what, yeah, it's after helping me to get to this point, 27, I'm still alive. I had no kids, no mad exes, no connections. I felt like if I could actually just get through this, I had a lot of potential, you know, and I did. I grinded it out. When I left the treatment facility then, I was homeless still, so um, about two weeks before I was due to leave, I ran Cork Simon Community, and I was very lucky. They had a, um, a step-down facility, like a, a, an aftercare house for people in my situation, and there was four beds and there was one left, and I got that, and uh, I got into that. It's on the south side of the city as well, over in the middle-class areas where I was anonymous, and it was quiet and it suited me. But there was the feelings of... Um, Feelings of abandonment, like you feel like you're abandoning people up in the north side, you know, I feel like you're abandoning friends that still caught up in it and feeling of guilt. And then I'd some I'd a close friend that died from heroin overdose and early recovery. And I just, you know, I just felt a lot of, um, yeah, I'd walk through all that, I suppose, through 12 steps like Timmy, through counsellors, you know. But once I got through the, early, the first year of recovery, I felt then like, oh, yeah. How how I found out Timmy was on this journey then, Nicola, to kind of speed it up a little bit. When I was when when I came into early recovery, I still had consequences. So I got um the judge gave me suspended sentence and community service for that sale and supply charge I had. So I was doing community service and when I was doing community service, Timmy got out on the community return scheme, which is where people doing long sentences can serve the remainder of the sentence in the community. So when I met Timmy and Timmy was talking all the spiritual stuff and he was talking about recovery and I felt then like I wasn't on my own in it, you know what I mean? That like, here's somebody who I know, who's my neighbour, we know each other years, on the same journey and then I didn't feel so isolated, you know? And because I said, as I said, I always looked up to Timmy, you know, he was a bit older than us and we always kind of respected and looked up to Timmy. So then I felt like, yeah, do you know what? I'm on the right path, I'm on the right path. And you know, funny, a few things out of that, I mean, we go back to where we started with both of your stories and it started being fun, didn't it? It was good fun with the lads and, you know, it was an enjoyable place to be, to be taking drugs. And in both cases, it ended up in, I mean, horrific circumstances. The idea of, you know, being homeless and dying on the street is, you know, you can't really fall further and yet you still can get up and go take again. Um, I think small acts of kindness from people can go a long, long way. And um, it doesn't take much to be kind to people, to be nice, to be respectful to people. And, you know, sometimes you you don't know what they walk away with if you, if you are that way with them. And sort of thirdly then, the services that you've talked about, that Timmy, you used all the services that are available in the prison system and they stood to you and they've really stood to you and you've they got you on the road of education and into employment ultimately and running your own business um, and hoping to employ others from backgrounds like your own. Um, 
you know, and James, the recovery services, which sometimes we can hear people going in and out of like a spinning door. But for people like you that it actually works for, that's what it's about. And that's why they have to be financed and supported. And I think I've said before, we can't stop. We can't get bored listening to people about this sort of stuff because it's the success stories that we want out of them. Now, we interacted, we we came to know one another because... You guys are now podcasters like myself and we all have a love of this great audio revolution. But um, you set up about a year and a half ago in order to tell your own stories and to talk to other people and to address issues of mental health and all these kind of issues we've spoken about. Because there's a lot of people out there who firmly believe that they have to be tough and that there is no way out of the scenarios they're in and Listening to guys like you who've been through it is far better than listening to somebody like me. But tell me a little bit about your podcast and if you can talk to me about what we've discussed, what you're hoping to do over the over the coming weeks and months. So in January of 2020, I was on the Tommy Ternan show and I gave my story. And after the Tommy Ternan show, there was an overwhelming response, positive response. And I felt, I always felt like, um, like how that Tommy Tiernan and parents came about is the researchers had an idea of to have somebody like me or Timmy Ann you know had been through the prison system that was doing well today kind of vague enough they sent an email out to the probation service the prison service that email stumbled across mine and Timmy's email and we were both asked to do it and my wife as well and I ended up doing it you know so um, very nervous about doing it you know um, even Tommy like I was thinking like What's Tommy's experience with drug users? Has his house ever been burgled? Has he ever been mugged? Is he going to make it difficult? You know, all these things are going through my head. But he was a gent, but really positive feedback. So then after that, I'm thinking like, Jesus, I'm just one person that has a story, you know, but, but I know a lot of people like me that have, you know, that has even come from more hardship and they're even doing greater things, but they have no platform. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, I think about getting, doing a podcast. She started laughing at me. So I said, shut up, you know, who's in Guerrero, James, or this type of thing. So um, I got asked to do a lot of media off the back of it, you know, RT, Virgin, Radio, Documentary with TG Cahar. I declined everybody because I wasn't used to the attention. And I was saying to Timmy, I was saying, like, what all this media attention or people want me to do this, that, and the other. And I felt quite vulnerable and exposed. And Timmy was saying, um, do you know what? He was saying, why don't we start our own podcast? And as soon as Timmy said that, I was like, do you know what? You're fucking right. Let's just do it. That's how it came about. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, um, it, it was it was very strange how it did come about because at the time I was doing a lot of different stuff to kind of do my own internal healing and I was doing ayahuasca and stuff like that. And during an ayahuasca session, I don't know if I said this now before to anybody, but during an ayahuasca session, it, it told me that my, my purpose in life was to share my story, to help others, to bring out their stories to help others and others and others. And like then from chatting to James, knowing about all the feedback he was getting from being on the Tommy Tiernan show, the amount of people that were asking for advice, it was like, it was a no-brainer. We just said, why don't we do our own podcast to bring on people just like us, you know? It's like, and then it's actually like a massive AA meeting or NA meeting where... You bring somebody on and they give their story, 
you know, and others then that are listening can relate and they don't feel isolated anymore or they don't feel like they're on their own. And that was the whole purpose behind it. We had absolutely no idea that it was going to take off like it did. You know, I remember doing the first two podcasts, which is my, my own story, and I was completely terrified, completely and utterly terrified and the way I was going to be received by the public and, and, and my family and everybody around me. And I r- literally had to kind of protect myself. And I would know really how to protect myself emotionally when when stuff like that came out at the beginning. So I kind of had to sit with myself for about two weeks and just just feel everything that was going on for me. And the feedback was phenomenal. Like there was so many people didn't really know me. All they could ever see was the demeanor of this really tough, macho, tattooed guy, you know, that had this kind of image behind all over his face as in like the stay stay away, you know. But when they heard the background story, you know, the the hardship as a child, the trauma, the, the, the need for a teenager just wanting to fit in, people really changed their perception and, and people that would have never even looked at me or, or even said hello to me were starting to say hello to me on the street, people from my area. And that was that was one of the best things for me is just to see people's faces and the fear was gone out of their faces and all they wanted to do was just say hello to this fella that they really didn't know. You know, they, they only knew him as being this mad, mad, mad fucker like from the area that was involved in drugs and... That was a bit of a a boy, let's say. But deep down, all he was himself was a boy, a kid, you know, that never grew emotionally or anything like that and created this image to protect himself, you know. Um, and that it, that's where it went. The podcast just spiraled from there and it just kept growing and growing. And the amount of feedback we're after getting from people is after helping so many people just to turn on the right path in life you know, and, and to stop taking drugs. And, and, and what we do is we bring on every single form of person. You know, we bring on every single form of of way of getting help. You know, it might be therapy, it might be ayahuasca, it might be energy tapping, it might be absolutely anything. They're just a few. And some things work for some people and they don't for others. And that's what we do. That's this, you know, um, and it's helping myself and James grow as well as people. It's helping me massively with my own self-esteem problems and my confidence. And, and it's, it's, it's been massive. It's mind-blowing, you know, it's completely mind-blowing. And a huge success for you both is the fact that the podcast has been streamed into the prison systems. Very proud of that because that's the people that need to hear it the most, you know. I remember we had... Um, Dr. Gabor Mate on the podcast, who's this like leading, he's a leading, um, he's a physician, but he's world famous for his theories on trauma and addiction and how childhood trauma links with chronic illness and negative life outcomes. And he gets asked to do all these world famous conferences, a best-selling author and all these things. But we got him on our podcast, right? But in the email, I said, I couldn't believe, no, we got a man, like I couldn't believe I got a reply. And then he was so genuine and so sound. But in the email, I said, look, to be honest with you, I said, government, you'll do a lot bigger events than this. I says, and you'll talk to all people that have heard you before, that have read your books and listened to your YouTube videos. I says, and they'll take a laugh from it. 
I says, but you know our audience, I says, they've never heard you. I says, but they really could. And this opportunity, I says, might be the only time they'll ever get to hear you because some of them are in treatment centres and some of them are in facilities, institutions and prisons where they're probably um, thinking clearly for the first time in a long time and you'll be speaking to them. And he actually addressed prisoners directly and he was able to explain to them that you're not your behaviour, your behaviour is a context, but it's not you and you're more than it and you, that behaviour can change and you're better than that. No, it was great, you know, so it's for, we're very proud that uh, it's been streamed in the prisons and we get feedback from prisoners when they get out as well, which is very cool. Well, you should be very proud and you have some very exciting projects coming up, including some more live shows um, coming into next year as well in Cork and you're kind of, you're going to end up touring Ireland, are you? You're leaving me way behind in your dust. Well, we're trying to catch you in the charts now. We'll be doing well, Nicola. <laughs> well, listen, Timmy Long and James Leonard, it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks for taking the time today to come on Crime World and tell us your stories. You're very welcome and thanks for coming down to Cork to come on our live podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Nicola. It's been a pleasure talking to you and you know what? You're actually a very, very kind woman as well and I mean that. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com.